0: Our passage this morning comes from John 15. We're going to be looking at the first 17 verses. So John 15, 1 through 17. Just to help us get our bearings a little bit, uh, we're in this long section where uh, we hear the words of Jesus. You might wonder what the context is. It's really, it's hours before He's going to go to the cross. So we're in that, once you get to the second half of the book of John, it's it's all about him going to the cross and what that means and what happens after the cross. And so they call this, a lot of scholars call this the farewell discourse. That this is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. These are last words, if you will. He's preparing them. Uh, You know, like I said, you know, you think about how it's merely hours away that he's going to go to the cross? What would you say then? And by the time you get to John 15 in this ongoing conversation, uh, Jesus gives them a picture. A picture of what it looks like to, to belong to him and what comes out of a life like that. You know, we, we live in a culture that is um, going through some change from the inside out Western civilization and whatnot. Sometimes we have this theory that if what we could do is um, live the Christian life in such a way or establish a kind of, you know, rebirth of Christendom in the West, that we could get a, a social order, you know, that would bear certain kinds of results. Maybe. But, maybe not. What we know in the call to follow Jesus what it means to belong to Him, what the picture of it looks like is regardless of what the world around us looks like, whether or not you know um, the, the, the culture is friendly to you, whether or not uh, the governmental inner workings are actually working and whether they're working for the flourishing of where we live, the legacy of where we live, whether or not that is particularly friendly to our faith, kind of irrelevant to what comes out of our faith. The, the call is the same regardless. It's actually not dependent upon what the world around you believes or, you know, where the pressure comes in. It's not like that. This is a life that goes beyond the world we live in. And so when Jesus is given this picture of what this looks like, he's letting them know that if you're The contrast is if you're connected to the world, there's going to be kind of this, uh, by implication, the fruit of the world. But if you're connected to me, you're going to bear fruit that's consistent with this other kingdom. So who are you? Where are you connected? Where's your your life come from? Where do you live? Where is your place of refuge? What's your identity? Let's look at John 15 together. Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. And in the words of Jesus, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask uh, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you so you so that you will love one another. Again, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of the Son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, constantly lays this out, prepares us, empowers us um, to know what it's like um, to be a citizen of the kingdom and live in the world, to have the life of Jesus, be called to the life of Jesus, and be a recipient of that grace and bear fruit. So Lord, as we remember the words of apart from me, you can do nothing. Help us to understand that well and be fruitful for your glory and for our joy and for our neighbor's good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So if you notice in your handout, the very first thing that I put there is an extended metaphor. You know, what you see in the vine and the branches and all that stuff is not a parable. It's not a story. There's no plot development. It's not like he starts and somebody went away to such and such kingdom or there was a farmer who planted and, uh, and then the story goes somewhere. It's not that. It's, it's a picture. It's an illustration, you know, so it's a metaphor. Um, there's actually a way that you could say it's an analogy. It's a comparing of one thing that everybody kind of knows and they can say, oh, this other thing pictures that. This is what it's like. And it starts early uh, when, when Jesus gives this extended metaphor. It starts with the true vine, verses 1 through 2. Now, notice he says, I am the true vine. I am that. This is in John. There are all these I am statements that Jesus makes. And some of them look like they're like uh, maybe not incidental, but reinforcing the overall self-designation of God who declares himself to Moses as I am. Whom shall I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. I'm the one who always is. Before time and now and forevermore. I'm the enduring eternal God. And so that I am is God's self-designation and Jesus comes on the scene as the word of God, God's self-expression. I am. So he says I am a lot. He says it uh, in some ways like I am the light of the world or I am the bread of life. But he also says it in in a very conspicuous way when there's this debate and there's a lot of pressure and he points to Abraham because his opponents were pointing to Abraham as though we belong to Abraham kind of an argument. Was it better to belong to Abraham or is it better to belong to Jesus? Jesus says, well, let me give you one offer of proof. Before Abraham was, I am. And so, Jesus has been revealing Himself as the Word of God, as God the Son, and He uses that I am statement. So, here's the last one we find in John, I am the true vine. This is the picture of the vine, and He says the Father is the gardener, and He wants a, what, what does a gardener want? You know, we, we, I don't know if it's famous now, but we, we have a cheeseburger garden in the back of, uh, in our backyard. And so we started off, I think I, I probably told you this, so if this is the, this is very much a part of my family to tell the same stories over and over, so I love you all, right? Um, but we, we, I don't know what happened, it was like a midlife crisis uh, thing, and so we decided we we're going to plant a garden, and we call it the farm, Lovingly the Farm. And uh, like, I don't know, we just came up with this idea, let's plant squash and zucchini and all this stuff. And they grew like mad, I mean, we had this great return. The only problem was I don't like to eat squash or zucchini or whatnot, but I'm a big fan of cheeseburgers. And so we're like, whoa, 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 let's have a design in this. So we call it a cheeseburger farm. So anything that you could put on a cheeseburger, that's what we grow. Like, you know, tomatoes and onions and lettuce and cheese slices and stuff like that, right? (laughs) But as, a, as, a, as good farmers, Kara and I planted this, and we want a return for our work, right? And, and Jesus pictures the father like that, right? He's the one who is the gardener. He's the one who's working with it, but not, not just to protect it for itself, but he's, he's, he has an intention, he has a plan, and he wants a return for that to come out of it. And that's what God does. So what does he do with the branches that come out? Well, if there's a fruitless branch, he takes it away, he says. What about for the ones that are bearing fruit? Well, happy news, he prunes those. Um, but that's a sign of life, so that they'll bear uh, more of his intended fruit, like a grape or an olive, into the world. There's maybe one more thing, at least, that we should talk about in these first two verses, when Jesus says, I'm the true vine. He doesn't just say, I'm the vine. He says, I'm the true vine. There's an extra little word there. I'm the true vine. Um, Jesus and even John have talked about this before. They've kind of discussed this. Some of the scholars will talk about, we see this sort of replacement motif in John. There's a symbol or a type and Jesus fulfills that. That's true, but you don't necessarily need to know that. It's way more handy than all of that. So I'll give you an example or two, or maybe more where Jesus does this. So when he fed people, They were looking for bread, and Jesus in John 6 says, hey, listen, that's true. There was a bread from God that came down out of heaven, manna, right? That was from God. God gave this, but it wasn't an end in itself. How do you know that? Because those who followed, those who received that bread, they ate it and they died. But I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will never die. See what he's doing? He's saying, what that manna was is it was a symbol or a type that would later be fulfilled in what I've come to do. That pointed to me. You want a bread from God that will give you life? Don't settle for a sandwich. Like eternal life is, uh, is at hand here. Whoever eats this bread will never die. You'd see it also in, say, festivals. You know, the Passover lamb was a type. It pointed ahead to the real thing. John the Baptist points at Jesus and he says, Behold, there he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the fulfillment of those festivals. The temple. The temple was God's building where God manifested his presence. When you come in here and you say, This is the house of God. I know what you're saying, but theologically you're wrong. This is a building. It's just a building, right? The old timers who got their good theology like this, they were so careful about that because they didn't say, this is an altar or this is the house of God. What they would say is, this is our meeting house because we're living stones, you and me who believe in God's temple. Well, what what was going on in John where the presence of God was manifested in the temple and there's this departure of Jesus? Well, who was he? He's the one who became flesh and tabernacle, dwelt among us, the presence of God. Uh, God become flesh to be in our presence, just like Genesis before the fall. And here is the vine. Uh, interesting little note, you can see this sometimes. Israel in the Old Testament was oftentimes depicted as the vine of God. Right? And and so God is this gardener, and He plants this vine, and He works with this vine, um, but it didn't give a good return. Uh, it's planted by the Lord, but it didn't bear good fruit. You can see this if you want to look at later, uh, Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, and even Romans 11. Um, and Jesus comes on the scene where you could tell there was Israel as. The vine planted by God, but not the true vine. That's, that, that would be the failed vine or a symbol or something that would point ahead. What did it point ahead to? To Jesus. The one who would bear and bring the fruit of God into reality. What was God's plan? What was God doing to work in the world that he was planting and cultivating and bringing the fruit out? What, where would that come from? It would come from Jesus. He's the true vine. So, symbolically, you know, what are the, you know, where are you going to find the grapes of God? You're going to find it through Jesus, through the work and ministry and person of Jesus. You're going to find the product of God, the plan and working of God. You're going to find it through Jesus. He's the true vine. That's where the harvest really is. That's God's, God's plan in the world is going to come through him. So, here's the other side of it, though. We're ident- identifying Jesus who identifies himself as the true vine. Who are they? If you do a little survey of these verses, you are, shows up a few times. So because of who he is, he would say to them things like, you are clean. You are uh, the branches. You are my friends. All based on who Jesus is in their lives. Who are they? Well, oh, this is a little... Detail, if you just read it straight through, you get it, because this is part of the same conversation. There was a guy who had been there who is no longer there. Helps to understand this passage, if you remember this guy, you know, with the, with the bad mustache and the black hat named Judas. Okay? Everybody knows he's a bad guy, a nefarious character, not somebody that you want to bring home for Thanksgiving. Um, and so, who's not there? Judas is not there. Who's not connected to the vine? Judas is not connected to the vine. If there's a stick on the ground, who's that stick on the ground? In their immediate context, Judas. But they're the branches. So Judas is already gone, and it's just those remaining in Christ who remain. So Judas is a branch taken away, and the disciples are those branches who are going to be pruned and made fruitful by, by God their gardener. So that's the first part. I am the true vine. There was a, Israel was depended picked it as a vine in the Old Testament before, but it was a type and symbol that pointed to me that would really bring out the fruit of God to bear into the world as a reality, the plan and workings of God. The next part of it, verses 3 through 6, he talks about his branches. So there's the true vine and his branches. Who are they again? Verse 3, you are already clean, he says. Jesus has told them he's the way. And, uh, Again, the contrast between Judas and the true disciples. Judas, so he says, you're already clean because, why? The word I have spoken to you. Judas is not clean. He rejected that word and he's gone. They're clean because the disciples believed. And the grace of God that would come through Jesus is at work in them. He gives them at the beginning of verse 4 this exhortation to abide. Abide. Abide in me, and I in you. Stay connected to Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but then he gives this analogy, right? He, he brings it to bear, where he's already identified himself. Like, listen, I'm the vine. But here, by the time he gets to verse 4 and a little bit after, he says, then who are you? You're the branches. I'm the vine, and you're growing off of me. You're connected to me. And we might go, well, I don't know anything about vineyards. You know what I mean? The closest that, that we'd have if some of you take a trip out to California or something like that, or you've seen a documentary or, or whatnot, but we don't live necessarily in that world where we're here with olive presses or, you know, vineyards for, uh, for, with grapes and all of that. I don't think you have to be. He's doing a really common picture. You walk up and say there's a tree, okay, just a little tree, and you see this out of the trunk of it, there's a the branch coming off, And they're like green leaves and stuff like that. You go like, oh, okay, well, that's a branch of the tree. It's got life in it, and it's got the life of the tree coursing through it. And so where where those roots sink down and its strength and the life comes from that, That the life of the tree is infused into the branch, and it's bearing the fruit or producing the life product of what that tree is. And then you see a stick on the ground, and that stick is dry and brittle so that if you step on it even, it'll just snap. You don't look at that and go, well, they're basically the same. And that thing is dead, and it's not going to be undead. Why? What's the difference? But you could say, well, location, location, location. Um, So he's just doing that, like something that we could all know. Hey, listen, I see this, uh, you don't see this branch just wandering around on its own. Like, I'm going to bear fruit, but I'm going to do it apart from the tree. So everybody knows that. Just like a branch can't do anything apart from its mind, you can't do anything apart from Jesus. So he does this contrast. Verse 5, whoever abides uh, in me, he it is that bears much fruit. You have Christ, you have life. Look at verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. You don't have Christ, you don't have life. Um talk about that abiding more what does it mean to uh, abide uses that word over and over I, there's there's some nuance to the word it can depend on the context but basically it means and here's your handout to, to make it the place you live make it the place you live where do you live where do you stay that's where you abide where do you remain where do you stay where do you take up residence you know when the disciples uh encounter Jesus the question comes up where are you staying Where do you live? But the nuance from our part, because God abides too, but there's a difference between God and us. We, the big difference. I mean, there's a lot of big differences, right? We're fragile. We're vulnerable. So sometimes, well, just make it kind of common sense. We live in a place where there's severe weather. Uh, Do you take for granted your house I mean, it's windy today, right? No good hair days in Billings, um, but it's windy today. But you can live out there. But a couple of months ago, when it's, you know, well below zero, what does your house give you? Your house is a place of warmth and where you fellowship with your family, and that's where your life, like, flourishes, right? But it also protects you from the elements. Another question. When you go home at night, do you lock the doors? Why do you do that? Well, it's because that keeps you safe, right? And if you go, no, I don't. I just tell you, lock your doors, okay? (laughs) You need to lock your doors. Um, If you're vulnerable, the place you stay is a place of refuge. So let me give you, I'll quote, this is all over the Psalms. Psalm 61.3, for you, he says to God, you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Where do you live? Where do you live when you have enemies? So, you know, he, Jesus will say, I abide in you, but uh, he can abide in you. There's mutual abiding, but he's not fragile. He's not finding refuge in you, you know? The, the, the branch can say, listen, the rest the, the tree is performing its work through me, but it doesn't work the other way around. Uh, let's transition a little bit into the benefits of abiding, we might call it, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, and that's how you bear Fruit. that that's how this thing works that's a picture of what it means to be connected to me there's a more there's probably a more precise way of doing it but to survey it we can survey this in a helpful way to cover all the verses and see uh, what's in the person who abides in Jesus what's in the person who's connected to Jesus let me give you several number one answered prayer in verse seven, he says, abide in me and my, words, and, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then again, he repeats that at the end of verse 16. Whatever you ask in my father's name, uh, he'll give it to you. That kind of thing. Now, here's what people do is they'll go, whatever. Like I can ask for whatever and he'll give it. To... Did you catch that little qualifier? Whatever you ask in my name. It's an important qualifier. By the way, what do branches ask for? You know, if you're a, if you're a branch on a pecan tree, um, you don't ask uh, to produce fungus, right? That's not, that's not branch behavior. That's not pecan tree branch behavior. If you're really abiding in the tree, if you're really abiding in the vine, you want what's consistent with the fruit of the tree itself because you share its nature. So whatever you ask in my name, someone who's abiding in me, what does this tell you? Because these people who are going to bear fruit, these disciples for Jesus connected to him, they're going to be people who pray. And it's funny, I think, um, God gives us gifts. Everybody in the room, me, you, everybody, we all, have, nobody has all uh, gifting, nobody here is omnicompetent. But each one of us has something to make a contribution with, right? And if you're pretty good at something, you start to think you're pretty good at something. Like it's almost like, I don't know. I wonder where God would be without me, you know? Like this ministry that's there where God's doing this great work. I mean, it's a good thing I showed up when I did and we can get that way right we can get very self-reliant we we can think we're bulletproof and all of that well your gift comes from God it's a pretty fragile thing in that sense it's a limited thing and uh, what he's telling us here is fruitfulness doesn't come through the gifting in and of itself it comes through the the grace and power of God people who are connected to Christ who are serving Christ they're going to be people who pray because they know that there's a true vine and they're not the true vine Right, whatever you produce. Let's just say, you're teaching a kids class. Great, thank you, by the way. And for people, so one of the philosophies we have here is that we're not just taking care of the little kids while the adult people are doing big adult things. It turns out those those little kids are made in the image of God, and they need Jesus. And that's a real ministry where we're uh, there's an opportunity to sow seed and teach them about the Lord and to share the gospel and be clear about that, right? To know I'm doing this and these little, you know, wily creatures down there are tough to deal with sometimes, right? Um, and they're fun and all of that, but a very worthwhile ministry, but you, you pray. You, you pray that, that seeds you sow now um, that God will use years and years later. Number two, glorifying God. At the beginning of verse 8, he says, uh, by this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit, you bear much fruit through abiding in Him. Uh, bearing fruit, he says, brings the Father glory. It's the best thing that we do. That's the best thing that you do in all of it. Let's say, and this just shows up in all of life. What if you're a spouse? Uh, How does your marriage glorify God? Well, just love your spouse well, given the situation. Love your children well, given the situation. Work well, uh, given your work situation and all that. But in terms of ministry, do that. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 10.31. He's talking about all these people being super religious and all that. And he says, listen, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This big umbrella, right? Um, how do you eat food that tastes good to the glory of God? Well, who do you think? Who made your taste buds come alive, right? Glorify God in everything you do. Well, It's one of the best indicators for should I do this? Like ask yourself, does this bring glory to God? Can I glorify God in what I'm doing? And if your life and ministry is about Him, it ought to be about glorifying God and so he's connected to Christ what are you, what's the fruit that's going to come out of that what's one of the benefits that's going to come out of that is that it's going to it's it's going to infuse everything so that it goes to the glory of God Number 3 fruitfulness this shows up all over the passage but you can see it at the end of verse 8 bear much fruit so prove to be my disciples um you know, earlier in this passage, it's, uh, that's what the vine and the branches are there for. Verse 8, your fruitfulness glorifies God, and it shows who you are. A branch, uh, when, you, when you look at a branch that produces apples, what do you do? You don't go, is that a cottonwood? Right? You know, you see that fruit off of it, and you know what it is because of its fruit. He's saying it's like that in your life. You're going to bear a kind of spiritual fruit that people are going to know where you came from and where you live and who you're connected to. It's just going to come out of your life and it's going to be an easy marker. You're going to prove uh, that you're his disciples. But verse 16, uh, you see in fruitfulness um, that it's the purpose for which Jesus chose and appointed his disciples. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you for this. Why are we still here? It's because God's got to work that comes through the power of Jesus, and you're the branches through which that's going to come. By the way, all this, you know, you do the analogy and whatnot, and he says, bear fruit, obviously a picture. What's he talking about in terms of bearing fruit? What does that look like in your life? I think it's pretty broad. He doesn't get overly specific. Because of their ministry, you could think of things like uh, converts, you know, sharing the gospel and people who come in to believe. That could be a thing. Uh, obedience. He talks about that again here in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, love me, that could be fruit. Love for other believers, that shows up twice here. Verse 12, verse 17. It'd be like, listen, sometimes loving other believers uh, is difficult because it's not like dodgeball in school where you get to pick your team and then the other guys get the, the other team. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to pick you, but like, I don't know, right? You know, you don't get to, we're supposed to love each other as we've been loved. Not, not a selective type thing there. All those things that show Christ in your life, I think broadly is fruitfulness. Like fruit of the Spirit, the things that we're obedient, the things that we're commanded to do. So you see a fruitfulness in somebody who's connected to Christ. Somebody abiding in Christ. Number four, knowing God's love knowing the Lord's love. Look at verses 9 and 10. I love this because Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. And he says, the way that is, is the way your relationship is with me. So he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How does the Father love Jesus? That's pretty profound, right? How are you loved by Jesus? Well, that's going to be pretty profound too. It says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Uh, love in our kind of relationship is expressed in obedience. I just We've talked about this before. If you're married, uh, you'd say, whoa, does that seem conditional? Like, listen, if you're married, part of showing love in your marriage is faithfulness. Just part of it. You know, you, it's it's impossible, right? It doesn't fit together to say, listen, I love you, but I'm going to be super unfaithful to you. It's like, that's not what love looks like in that kind of relationship. When, when you're the disciple, when you're the one saved by grace, what does, and not the king, not the Lord, what does love look like in that relationship? It looks like obedience. I'll listen, I'll follow, because you know you have the authority. Some powerful words, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you what Jesus says to his disciples. Number five, joy. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's a lot there, but one of the things to pause and take note of, what an interesting time to be talking about joy. Uh, What's on the itinerary for Jesus in just a few hours? The cross. The cross is coming, And Jesus is talking to his disciples about joy. What does that tell you about the kind of joy that he offers? And so whenever he says in this verse what he gives them, he's giving them his joy. He's contrasted his peace versus the world's kind of peace. And here his joy could easily be contrasted with the world's kind of joy. I'm going to give you a kind of joy that adversity can't rob you of. So it's his joy. Uh, the, his joy, the joy that Jesus gives um, will uh, bring us to full joy and it comes through embracing what he teaches to his disciples. It's not like a magical thing like, okay, I said I believed in Jesus and I'm, I'm waiting for the ta-da. We hear and embrace what he teaches and it's through, that, it's through the faith of that um, that we receive joy. Like, for example, um, if the gospel hope is your hope, then you're going to know joy. But if the gospel hope is not your hope, you're not going to know joy. See? In terms of what he offers and gives. And unless you value that, unless you cherish it, you won't know. And then finally, friendship. Verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, he says Greater love has no one than this, that uh, someone lays down his life for his friends. That's what great love looks like. What does it look like? And, and, you know, obviously Jesus is pointing ahead to what he's going to do. He's going to go to the cross, and when he goes to the cross, he's going to lay down his life for his friends. Let me just ask you a cultural question. Friendship these days, where we live, do you think it's uh, on the rise or in decline? I mean, don't answer out loud. That would distract me. But on friendship, do you think it's on the rise, like, Oh, look at where we are culturally, culturally. look at how we just broadly see friendship in our world and we're more connected and we build each other up more, or is it more on the decline? What do you think? How about, say, friendship in church, friendship even in your marriage, on the rise or in decline? Greater love has no one than this that he lays down his life for his friends. And we're going to talk about the atoning work on the cross a lot. But a marker of friendship is, um, I'm going to pour myself out for you, not exploit you. If it is in decline, I wonder if it's because the way Jesus has modeled love for us, we don't actually live out of. We want to take but we, we, we don't see the value in somebody you just want to pour into them. That's so something to take home with you. Uh, obedience, he says in verse 14. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. What's he talking about here? All right, is he just saying, hey, listen, we're homeboys now. We're just buddies. So like we hang out, smash beer cans on her forehead, things like that buddies do. No, no, he's still who he is. He's king, right? What's the difference there? He's still king, but what does a king tell his servant to do? He just gives him the orders. What does a king who has friends, what does he tell his friends? He's still king. He's still going to operate as king, but he's going to tell, this is the big plan. You know who I'm, you're in my inner circle. You know what I'm up to and what I'm about. King is still though. Let me, over time, let me give you two to to wrap up and we'll talk about uh, themes of abiding in Christ, okay? What do we see in the broad passage? Because this is a big passage. Number one, if you read all of this, you go, ooh, I see our need for Christ. It shows up in uh, whenever he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like a stick on the ground has no chance. It has no source of life. Uh, apart from me, the true vine, you're not going to bear fruit. But he also says that in terms of sovereignty. Verse 16, you didn't choose me. By the way, sorry, if you're a believer and you go, well, like, listen, I I have faith in in Christ and all that, it's because God took this divine initiative with you and showed you grace. You're not a good chooser in and of yourself. You're not better than anybody else because you're, like, more spiritually attuned. Just, you know. The master said, Follow me. I chose you and I appointed you for this. God's sovereignty is very gracious. So, our need for Christ. Number two, Christ's work through us. The branches, these fruitful branches. What is God doing in the world? Well, He's bringing about His plan, the fruit, through His true vine. And there are these branches coming from the true vine bearing that fruit. The work God is doing in the world, He's doing through Christ who's working through us, like the command to love each other, uh, the command to bear fruit. So let me ask you a couple of questions to close. And then I'm going to give you a, a fun little rule of law. A couple of questions. Number one, where do you live? Not, here's my address. Where do you live? Where do you take refuge? What, what are you connected to? Who are you connected to? And then number two is, what is the fruit coming out of your life? Like, what are the markers? Somebody looks at you and goes, look at what, what's coming out of his life. Look at what's coming out of her life. And whenever you look at the fruit coming out of your life, what does that tell you? That's a great question. The fruit coming out of my life, what am I about? And what does that tell me? Um, So I said, rule of law. Close this way. In law, it's not often used, but it's a fun little doctrine from common law, from English common law. It's called the rule against perpetuities. Rule against perpetuities, kind of a fun thing. Well, what it was is a doctrine that would keep somebody who owned property from controlling that property through like centuries from the grave, they would die. And when people would want to do this, like, ah, like this son I like, but he's kind of a knucklehead and I want him to do this with the land. And so he would prescribe in his will, my son gets, you know, this house so long as he uses it for X purpose. Or... My son can have this house so long as he doesn't marry that girl. You know, things like that. And what the rule of law was is we can't have that. What we don't want to see from the grave, a dead hand coming up out of the grave ruling everything, right? Uh, It it could lock down the economy, stuff like that. So it's a good basic rule of doctrine. So you can't, you know, like you can't control things beyond the immediate. Why do I bring that up? Because Jesus, before he dies, is talking about what it looks like to be connected with him. But the rule of perpetuities or something like that wouldn't connect to him. Because it's not a dead hand ruling from the grave. Because it's coming from the one who overcame death. He's alive. And the true vine is alive and bearing fruit in the world through those connected to him. That's the command. Let's pray. Lord, if anything, may we be fruitful... For our joy and your glory, you're surely worth it. Those of us, we recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, there's no joy. Apart from you, there's no spiritual life coursing uh, in, uh, through us. We're not living stones put into a temple. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. So we just ask that you do your work through us. Amen.